Good morning, X-Ray FM listeners. It is 9 a.m. on International Women's Day, a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. And I'm your host, Candice Avalos. Today, I've brought together a roundtable of women with a variety of experiences and expertise in the environmental justice movement. And before we get into that, let's lay some groundwork and talk about what environmental justice is in its simplest terms. Environmental justice is a social movement seeking to achieve the fair and equitable distribution of environmental benefits and burdens associated with economic production, most often felt by marginalized groups or frontline communities. Frontline communities are those that experience the first and worst consequences of climate change, often people of color whose communities were placed in the least desirable areas of the cities, often with high exposure to climate impacts like flooding, poor air quality, extreme heat, things like that. And this movement's origins can be traced back to the 1980s, which was heavily influenced by the American Civil Rights Movement. And today it has generated a large interdisciplinary body of social science literature, including theories of the environment and justice, environmental laws and their implementations, environmental policy, sustainability, and political ecology. In my day job, I'm the executive director of an environmental justice nonprofit named Verde, which means green in Spanish. And our mission is to serve low-income and people of color communities by building environmental wealth through social enterprise, outreach, and advocacy. We were born in Northeast Portland's Cully neighborhood, a neighborhood with more than its share of poverty and less than its share of environmental assets, originally as an environmental economy program for Hacienda CDC's residents, which is an affordable housing provider based in Cully. We spun off into our own nonprofit in 2005. And at Verde, we believe that building environmental wealth is an anti-poverty strategy. This means that poverty and the environment are directly connected. Therefore, investment in environmental assets is a strategy to fight poverty, working at the intersection of racial, environmental, and economic justice. For Verde, environmental justice is at the heart of all issues of livability, security, and wealth. So on this International Women's Day, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring together this roundtable of influential women in the movement to talk about their stories of how they joined the environmental justice movement, how their experience as women influence environmental justice, and share a perspective of where we are and where we're headed. With that, I want to kick off this roundtable by going around the room and having our panelists introduce themselves share their current day job and what I like to call my night job, which is all the other things I do involved outside of my nine to five, and start our discussion by sharing the way that you all define environmental justice. So I'm going to kick it off with Vivian Satterfield. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Candace, for that wonderful introduction. Um, I am Vivian Satterfield. I use she, her pronouns or my name. Um, and I, my day job is I get to work with Candace and a wonderful team at Verde. Um, my title is I'm the Director of Strategic Partnerships, and I've been with Verde uh, coming up on four years this year. Um, and then, you know, I show up in a lot of different community spaces outside of that. Um, so for my night job, I serve as a commissioner, an appointed commissioner um, to our region's housing authority, Home Forward. Um, and the way that I would define environmental justice is that the communities who are most directly impacted by public policies that really dictate how they can live their everyday lives are the ones who also get to the opportunity to set it. And so it is the political agitation, it is the popular education and building of knowledge 
uh, in order to be able to influence those, those processes. Thanks so much. Thanks for being here, Vivian. Next, I wanna introduce Draisha Brannon. Thanks for having me. My name is Draisha Brannon, she, her pronouns. Um, my nine to five job is I'm a civil environmental engineer for the city of Portland, Bureau of Environmental Services. Um, I kind of got into environmental justice by uh, my, my STEM background. Um, so I've always been involved in science and engineering and even was researching um, greenhouse gases when I was younger and it kind of gave me that foundation. And then once everything kicked off in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, I wanted to get involved and do something. So I joined the Portland NAACP. And so that kind of um, is my, uh, my after work activities as I serve as the volunteer environmental justice chair for the Portland NAACP branch. Um, and my definition of environmental justice um, really is about strengthening community resilience and livability. So that goes into policy, uh, food justice, transportation equity, um, and then just having political impact and power because that kind of is the foundation of NAACP is our advancement for colored people. Thank you so much for being here. Lastly, in our panel, we have Anna Kemper. Hi, everybody. Um, so my name is Anna Kemper. Um, I use she, her pronouns. And currently in my day job, I work for Here Together, which is a nonprofit working to bring an end to the Portland region's homeless crisis. And in my free time, I do organizing with Sunrise Movement PDX, which is a youth-led climate justice organization. And I also sit on the board of Portland Neighbors Welcome alongside Candice, um, doing housing justice advocacy. Um, and I also do some work with Oregon Walks doing transportation advocacy. And so um, I have I've been involved in organizing for six or seven years um, as a community organizer, and a lot of that has been at the crux of environmental justice, um, just recognizing the overlap um, of all these different justice issues, you know, housing, climate, transportation, it all overlaps. And so when we're working on all these issues, when we're talking about these issues, we have to recognize that overlap, recognizing um, that working on one can, can amplify all the other work. Thanks so much. I am so grateful that the three of you were able to join me in this conversation. Uh, we want to start off by just talking a little bit about how you came into the environmental justice movement and tell us any more of your background, uh, any storytelling you have around the way you have come into this work. Uh, Andresha, let's kick it off with you. I started telling that a little bit um, already, but I started getting into environmental justice because after George Floyd was murdered, I wanted to do something. And the NAACP has such a long legacy in doing that. And I've been volunteering pretty much my whole life. Um, and so I stepped into the NAACP and the political action committee. And there was a lot of discussion on environmental work. Um, and because my background is a civil environmental engineer, I have a minor in environmental science. And all through my young adulthood, I was uh, an intern at Portland State University studying methane emissions, and I was a four-time outdoor school student leader, so environment is actually the, the realm that I felt the most, most comfortable with. I don't consider myself really politically savvy, though that has changed since being in this role. I'm learning a lot for the, um, as my environmental justice committee chair, um, so I've learned a lot in the last two years, but it made sense when I joined the political action committee to step into environmental justice for the NAACP. And there was such a need for us to um, continue the work that the branch had done for the Portland Clean Energy Fund. 
and they needed a chair. Uh, and I initially started by saying, I'm happy to start the conversations with folks. And before I knew it, I was an environmental justice committee chair and helping in the legislative session last year and writing grants and running programming. And it was a lot for volunteer, <laughs> but it's kind of how I got into this. And I've been in a lot of community spaces in the last two years um, learning. So I feel relatively new to the movement, but not new to environmental work at all. Okay, so yeah, this is Anna. Um, so I grew up actually in Portland um, and I went to an environmental justice middle school in Beaverton. Um, it was called Rachel Carson Environmental School. Um, and so I came, became involved in an environmental work kind of at a younger age and kind of specifically environmental justice, probably before I could really know what that term meant. I was, I was interested in this work. And so um, I went to college at Western Washington University up in Bellingham, Washington, and I became engaged in organizing work pretty quickly. Um, I learned about the divest from fossil fuels movement at Western. And so I became engaged in fossil fuel resistance work. Um, and eventually I started working for an environmental nonprofit that was um, working to extend a, a moratorium on the local fossil fuel export term at Cherry Point up in Western Washington. Um, in that role, um, I learned a lot about community advocacy, the power of it, and how it could literally change public policy. Um, I also learned a lot about the difference between organizing and activism in that role, got really engaged in um, community outreach and, and trying to bring people together and sustaining movements long term. I believe the moratorium that's been happening on this fossil fuel export terminal has been going on for like six or seven years and it has to keep getting renewed every six months. And so it's just kind of been generations of, of local organizers that have been, you know, advocating and making sure that that, that continues up there. Um, my senior year at Western, I uh, got involved in this interesting position where I was um, our student liaison to the city. And so um, in that role, I chose to focus on affordable housing. I was doing environmental work and I was already seeing kind of the overlap between housing justice and climate justice. Um, and I just became very you know, deeply interested in, in that advocacy because housing especially feels very important to me. Um, it's what we, most of us spend the biggest portion of our budget on. It's um, where, you know, something everybody has an opinion on, everyone lays their head down somewhere at night. And so um, it feels like just, again, the crux of a lot of different issues, a lot of different justice issues. Um, <clears throat> so I moved back to Portland and I started organizing with Sunrise PDX, like I said, um, we're a youth-led climate justice movement fighting for a sustainable and livable future for all folks. Um, and then I also got involved in Portland Neighbors Welcome and Oregon Walk. So again, it's that overlap of climate, housing, and transportation justice. Um, so yeah, especially I'd just like to amplify the fact that I really right now have been focusing on housing advocacy. Um, from an environmental perspective, you know, where you, uh, if you can live near where you work and play and sleep, um, it means you're driving less and you're emitting less emissions. Um, and also fighting for housing justice also means supporting folks who are traditionally marginalized, um, especially by climate and environmental issues. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing y'all's experiences. I resonated with a lot of the points that both of you shared and the different points of like activation uh, alongside the sort of lived experiences in your lives. Um, for myself, and you know, this is Vivian, I, I think about actually my earliest memory. And one of my earliest memories in life was my, my mother, who was an immigrant from Taiwan, immigrated as an adult to the United States, waking me up before the sun was even rising and putting on her makeup and getting ready for her work day where she worked in a hotel as a hotel worker in downtown Chicago. Um, and so I'm a city kid, I grew up in the city, um, but we lived on um, the far Northern edge of the city. And I would, I would go with my mom in this pre-dawn hour and we would walk to either the LSAP or the bus stop 
and put in a token and take that long journey to downtown Chicago where then she would work her job. And so for me, you know, my I think my entry into the environmental justice movement really was through through transportation. I knew that, you know, transportation was an integral link for my mom to be able to work her job, one of the only jobs that was accessible to her as a new adult immigrant woman in this country who didn't, you know, had spoke English, but, you know, still had barriers to to employment because of a lot of systemic biases um, for for folks who are new to this country and new to this culture. Um, And so, you know, I think my very first observations of the world was always a sort of a curiosity of like, why is that? You know, why is, and you know, my neighborhood is extremely um, demographically diverse. Um, and a lot of the folks were immigrants, um, had a lot of, you know, Latino folks, a lot of black folks in my community. You know, I knew the type of jobs that the parents in those households were working. And I always had a curiosity of like, why is that? <laughs> you know, why is it that like we have to commute to these downtown places? Why is it that, you know, all these adults um, are the, the cab drivers? you know, for for other professionals that we see. And some of those professionals don't work in our neighborhood. And so I think the curiosity of of how the spatial relationship of where we were living and, you know, the types of jobs that were accessible and the type of transportation options that were or were not available to our community really spurred a lifelong curiosity to understand answers to that question. I went through, I went through formal schooling and, you know, was able to, to graduate undergrad uh, in Chicago. And I just was never found anything that was actually satisfactory. <laughs> Nothing that really gave me the framework and understanding. Um, and I relocated to Portland permanently in 2008. Um, and I was working for an affordable housing agency as just, just an office manager, just filing stuff, just answering phones. Um, but I received an invitation to join a Bus Riders Unite rally outside of TriMet's offices to um, raise awareness about what the impacts of a fare increase would have on working folks. And y'all, like I, I just got my driver's license uh, within these last few years. And so I've always been transit dependent. I've always been a person. Uh, I guess I've always been a bus person, <laughs> right? That's always how I got around. And so I, I had my own lived experience of transportation. Um, But I also saw that for a lot of the folks that we were housing in our affordable housing uh, services in outer Southeast Portland, that a lot of these folks were really struggling to get around and get the service, get the things they needed, access to education, access to food and jobs, because transportation really wasn't accessible, really wasn't affordable. And so when I showed up to this Bus Riders Unite rally outside of Tremont's offices, and I looked around, and you have to remember, it's 2008, I just came from you know, a lifelong <laughs> experience living in Chicago to Portland. And so I looked around and I was like, hey, the people who are here and showing up for this rally on this issue are my people. They're folks I haven't actually seen in Portland. And I got very excited and I got activated and I started showing up to Bus Riders Unite meetings. And I would say that's how I entered into the Portland local environmental justice movement. Um, and also talked my way into a job. So I was so fortunate to be able um, to then subsequently work as the deputy director at Opal Environmental Justice for a number of years and then be able to um, have a professional uh, introduction into shaping um, you know, some of the, the movement and the significant wins that we've had. But you know, I always think about that very root of it and on this kind of drizzly overcast day, especially on International Women's Day, I'm I'm really thinking about my mom and, you know, all the women who have that lived experience and how that's shaped me and and my activism. 
Thank you so much, you three. I definitely uh, connected to so many different parts of your stories. And uh, I really feel that I kind of fell into this movement. I, I heard a little bit of that uh, in your stories too, of just, um, just a realization of what environmental justice meant and how it intersects with all the other things that I've cared about. And, you know, admittedly only in recent years did I make that connection finally to how it's all rooted in environmental justice. And, you know, coming over here to Verde, I would say is my first formal uh, introduction into the movement, but I've been adjacent to the movement for uh, a few years now, definitely as it relates to racial justice, because so much of environmental justice is connected to that. Um, and also in these different housing justice spaces, just learning more about livability and what, what is a 15 minute neighborhood mean and how does that affect uh, certain communities and how it's all interconnected into um, just climate resilience. Uh, and this morning, I got a text from my grandma on WhatsApp. And it was really uh, timely because she just texted me with this really funny gif of an old lady uh, blowing out some candles and her dentures fell out. <laughs> And she's like, happy Women's Day or Feliz Dia de la Mujer. Um, and it just not only was funny and my grandma's hilarious. She always sends me funny gifts. But um, I it's my grandma for me is really the origins of what I understood environmental justice in a very simple thing, which is reducing and, re and reusing and recycling. Um, that was something that I remember uh, my grandma, you know, she had this little blue bin in her kitchen where she would put, you know, cans or other like plastics. And it was something that was actually really different. Um, I, something I wasn't familiar with outside of my home because I grew up in suburban Virginia, uh, definitely not at the forefront of the climate movement over there. And uh, it was just something that as the years went on, I reflected on just this concept of how we take care of our earth by just like making good use of what we have. Like, I feel like those roots, um, I learned from her, uh, especially, you know, also her being an immigrant from Guatemala and um, us growing up, you know, just not having so much. And so it was always about making the most with what we had. And, and that to me, I, I link back to those roots of just understanding this larger concept of like how we take care of each other and our surroundings and how that all links up back to environmental justice, um, which now I can make those connections, right? Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about uh, how your experience as a woman, your gender, how that shows up and influences you in the environmental justice movement. And I'm gonna kick it off with Anna. Okay, awesome. Well, I'll just start by saying that in a similar way that housing justice is, you know, is necessary for climate justice. Gender justice is also necessary. Um, climate and gender work are so interconnected and they always, it always has been. Um, women have always been leaders in environmental work, um, whether that be in a more visible sense or more behind the scenes. And I actually think it's interesting because I think just we, we often see a lot of um, cis men in spokesperson roles in climate work, um, while my personal ex lived experience is that it's 
not a, a lot of men doing this work, um, especially behind the scenes, especially that care work that is really necessary when you're doing volunteer stuff, you know, outside of your paid time. Um, that's women, um, that's non-cis men doing that work, stuff that's you know, maybe more obvious, like organizing potlucks, making sure everyone gets fed, but also the harder stuff like conflict resolution, like that is, that is, I, I see a lot of women, I've learned from a lot of women doing that work. So I'm proud to be a part of that legacy and carrying that on. Um, and again, just, I think these issues, housing, climate, gender, they're all interconnected and liberation on one front um, is necessary for liberation on all of those. We can't be fighting for climate justice without uplifting women um, and other marginalized gender identities. And so um, just to tie that all in again, I'm I'm proud to come from a line of women that are working to get to get stuff done. My mom's a teacher. Um, all my grandmas have worked in the medical profession doing nursing work. And so um, I'm carrying, I guess, a legacy of, of women doing this critical work that will always be necessary no matter what world we live in. Hopefully this world that we're building is sustainable and just world. We're always going to need teachers and folks that are doing care work. That's uh that's, we don't always think about that, I guess it's like environmental work, but those are carbon neutral jobs. They're always going to be necessary. And so um, just, I guess, I'm grateful to have that, um, uh, that legacy and I'm trying to carry that on. Oh yeah. Anna, thank you so much for sharing sort of that line of gratitude and reflection on, you know, the care work as, as you framed it for us of who's doing the work and it, you're so right. Um, you know, looking around the environmental justice movement um, and even locally, you know, who's participating, the reality is that it's mostly, this is gendered work because issues of house and home, issues of, uh, you know, caring for and nurturing generations, honoring uh, what's come before you, a lot of that falls on, you know, uh, women and folks with other marginalized gender identities. Um, you know, I, I reflect on, uh, if we want to talk a little bit about transportation, reflect on how in the transportation world, even the travel habits of women is really different from that of men, right? Our transportation system typically is designed uh, by cis men um, and it's predicated on this going to work and going back home. And yet we know that women and other caregivers have different type of travel. It's called trip chaining in which you're gonna, oh, I'm leaving the house and I'm going on my way to work. I'm gonna drop off these kids. I'm gonna run this errand. I'm gonna do this and that and the other thing. And our transportation system is just not set up for that type of movement. And so, you know, it's really interesting looking around globally and seeing the sort of transportation innovations that actually have happened spurred by um, you know, women saying, I need something different for my transportation needs. Um, I also think about, you know, I want to lift up some of the environmental justice leaders who have been unabashed about how their identities and experiences as um, cis women uh, has really influenced their participation and their activism in the environmental justice movement. I think about Elizabeth Yen Pierre. Um, who, you know, with Uprose in New York City, who has continuously fought um, for communities, uh, immigrant communities and other marginalized communities in the city and around the impacts of what climate change and the impacts of, you know, rising waters has on their communities. I think about um, the late Hazel Johnson, who I think is actually not well celebrated in our movement, but is the mother of environmental justice, a Chicago housing, you know, resident 
who fought for uh, better protections around the toxicity um, that she knew that her and her family were being exposed to because of the siting of, of affordable housing at the south side of Chicago. Um, you know, I think about these leaders, these women of color, these black and brown women who continuously have said, from my lived experience, looking around at my house and home and the people that I love and what's being impacted by them, I know that something is, um, that something's up, <laughs> right? I know that it's not a, it's not a, a total mistake that, you know, our, our housing is being cited in our schools and our services are being cited in areas in which we're being exposed to air toxics, highways, um, you know, other polluting facilities. And so, and the reasons why they had such a difficult time um, being heard, uh, how often they were dismissed, how often they were marginalized, how often they were told to just go sit down and just worry about, you know, raising their kids, uh, worry about, you know, just go ahead and figure out how you're gonna get food on the table. But these are issues of environmental justice. Um, and so, yeah, today, especially, I want to lift them up and honor them. Thanks for everything you both said. I think I kind of want to echo that when I think of environmental justice in Portland and all of the people that I've met in the last two years of organizing and the different organizations I've met, it's it's mostly women who are doing all of the heavy lifting. And then when it comes to bringing, quote, experts to the field, it's always you hear the father of environmental justice, Dr. Robert Bullard. You don't get to hear about the women or even nationally um, for the NAACP. When I meet with all of the um, National Environmental Justice Climate Committee chairs, it's mostly women mostly black and brown retired women who've been doing this work forever. And we don't really have a ton of paid staff for the NAACP. So every time we're discussing, it's always discussed as environmental justice work as a labor of love. Um, it's something that these women have for years been working on. Um, and they kind of, it's almost like they pass the torch whenever they see our new climate justice chairs, at least for Portland and Eugene, we have um, a pretty young generation of organizers. Um, but it is, it's interesting when we think of environmental justice with names that get brought up to the top or sometimes, yeah, Dr. Robert Bullard, father. Um, but when I think of my foundation in environmental work and getting the awareness of these topics, it was Rachel Carson. Um, I remember when I was applying to be Rose Festival Princess, they asked you who was one of your role models. And I picked Rachel Carson because I thought, I liked that she had such a strong um, conviction based on science. Um, and that she was willing to risk it all. And it was it was dangerous too. And so it's neat to hear that actually Anna went to a school named after her. Um, but then I also have learned so much since, I grew up in Portland. So a lot of the things I was taught were pretty much foundations on white westernized education. So I didn't get to hear about these black and brown leaders in environmental justice and not until my senior year of high school even where I was even showcased my own history, something to be, um, to be able to talk about and know um, that there are leaders that I could relate to. Um, so I really appreciate Vivian also mentioning some of these other leaders, but uh, yeah, so kind of just echoing what folks are saying. Thank you so much everyone for lifting up these uh, powerful women in this movement. And uh, I'm excited to continue this conversation after we take a quick break. See you in a few moments.
Welcome back, X-Ray FM listeners. I am your host, Candice Avalos. We are here talking about environmental justice with a roundtable of women in the EJ movement here in Oregon. Uh, and we're going to jump right back on into the conversation and talk about where we think the movement is right now at this critical juncture. There's a confluence of multiple different intersecting crises right now that are climate, economic, racial justice. Um, so tell us a little bit about where you're seeing the movement, where it's headed right now. Vivian, kick us off. Yeah, thanks so much, Candice, and uh, welcome back, everybody. Vivian Satterfield, she, her. Um, you know, we are at this critical juncture right now, the confluence of these intersecting crises of climate, of economy, um, of racial reckoning, of, you know, gender and, you know, intersecting identities, um, and the fight for continued equality and representation in all of the spaces. Um, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about is actually, you know, how the, the Me Too movement really spurred a, a greater conversation around especially uh, the experiences of, of women and folks who have marginalized gender identities in the professional and interpersonal uh, spaces. Um, and I think the environmental justice movement does give us a good framework and an understanding to grapple with intersectionality and an understanding of how our lived experiences really shape our identities, um, you know, really shape how we move through the world. And can give us some responses to how to um, how to create the campaigns, the movements, the the language, even um, to understand where we are now and to articulate what's the vision of the world that we all deserve to live in. Um, you know, I, I think that something that, I, that I've been thinking a lot about. We chatted a little bit during the break. Um, is also how. Uh, you know, all of us here are from our, our peers, right? We're from a similar age range and age group. And something that I do hope to see and that I wanna honor myself as well, and as I do the work, is how much we can continue to build on the legacy of older folks who've been in this movement and who have a lot of the histories. I mean, we just, uh, Jerisha, you know, it's able to sort of bring up that frequently we talk about Dr. Bob Bullard as being the, you know, the father of the environmental justice movement, but, you know, and I offer that we actually have a counter of the, the mother of environmental justice, um, who's Hazel Johnson. And why are, why don't we know some of these older folks? Why don't we know some of the folks of previous generations who contributed to our movement? And I think that we place a lot of emphasis and we continue to talk about who gives us hope. And naturally, we all reference younger folks. Oh, it's the youth <laughs> who give us hope. Um, but actually, it's that and it's it's the folks who are still in this work. <laughs> Have you been in this work? Have you been agitating in these spaces with all, all the burdens um, of culture and how slow things move? If you've been doing this for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, I, I, I want to hear what their stories are. And I think that something our movements can do better about is not be disposable of you know older folks and aging folks um, in this experience because I think there's a lot of contributions that that they have had and I think there um, still a lot of growth that can happen um, and so I've been thinking really about that generational link and um, this is a wonderful conversation with you all uh, 
And I do wish that we almost had someone from an older generation um, to, to help like round out some of what we're sharing and maybe give continue to give us a little bit of hope and where we think, you know, the movement can continue to further and be better um, at this point in time in which, you know, everything is at stake. Thank you so much, Vivian. Um, just acknowledging, you know, what you said, I, I really find it grounding to know that there have been folks involved in um, climate and environmental justice work for generations. In some ways, it can be a little bit overwhelming and disheartening that this work is still continuing. But um, I really, as a young person, I'm 25, I find it really uh, like when I get to talk to older organizers, folks who have been involved in, in movement spaces for a long time, um, it's really, really beautiful to kind of see and hear their stories. And um, I also just want to acknowledge that there's actually a danger, I think, in putting a lot of pressure on younger generations to be um, to be solving everything. I think we're in this space right now that we're really doing that. Um, a lot of a lot of us, especially who are younger, you know, I think we were raised on like these stories, these books and movies of like this heroism, like there's one person who's going to come in and kind of like save it. And I think a lot of young people feel that pressure, especially those who are involved in climate work, where, you know, if you're in high school, school right now, you're growing up in a world where you've you've known that that we're nearing climate tipping points. And that's a lot of burden to carry as a young person. And so um, just want to acknowledge that we all have a part to play in this movement. Um, anybody listening, you have a role. You can be an organizer in your community. Um, and kind of going back to Candace's question, um, you know, back to tipping points. Um, it goes without saying that we're nearing some critical scientific tipping points. And I don't I don't know about you all, but I tried to read the report the IPCC put out last week. I couldn't. <laughs> I read the cover page, I think. Um, at this point, you know, sometimes that can just feel really heavy and overwhelming for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, the gist is that we're, we're, we're still in this brief window of time where we can be taking critical action. Um, but the models are showing that what we're facing is is potentially worse than having quicker impacts than they even thought before. And so, um, yeah, I think we're at this critical point where we can still be proactive instead of reactive. Um, and from a housing justice perspective, you know, we're going to be seeing um, an influx. We already are seeing an influx of climate refugees. Um, and I say that term that's happening now because um, folks are having to, to migrate because of climate impacts. Um, and we're gonna be seeing that, especially in the Pacific Northwest. And so um, in my work right now, doing work on houselessness, um, we're just gonna be seeing an increase of that if we're not proactive about it. Um, we need to be thinking about folks living outside, not just in the present tense, um, not just dealing with like the current ice storm or heat wave, but thinking about it down the line. So what is that gonna look like in 10 or 20 years? Um, and if we could be proactive now, and I think that, starts immediately with moving folks right now towards permanent housing, a top priority, as well as thinking about how we're gonna be having to house um, many more folks, thinking about it in like a community care perspective, um, as well as like this like climate resiliency perspective. Um, we're gonna be better in a better spot if we're proactive about it than thinking about it five years from now. I think this movement right now, it seems like we're seeing as you both have said, more younger, like more younger folks getting involved in this. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that what was working for our past generations to have prosperity and to live and have all their needs met is no longer working right now. Um, we were seeing such a push to go to college, get educated, and you'll have a job that is livable. 
well, that's not true. I've worked with people um, in retail before I became an engineer with doctorates and they were still struggling to make a livable income to be able to have a home, things that um, was, again, working for our past generations does not work now. And it's making us put a new lens on, it's not just the economics, which is a huge part of environmental justice movement and how those are all linked up together, but it's even just in the quality of life of what's around us, our access to nature, um, who's seeing these heat zones and um, who's having access to food and those necessities. So I think right now, as Anna was saying, we are running, it feels like we're running out of time um, because we put so much pressure on the younger generation to kind of figure things out. Um, but we're also trying to live and thrive and have that prosperity that past generations have had. And so we're just, I feel like it's its amped up with um, the last uh, couple generations. So I see that as being kind of the, the huge like critical point in this movement right now and then realizing because we're running out of time we're seeing more environmental hazards with less time in between um so i know we're going to get cascadia for oregon at least is going to be something that we know is coming and we also realize that those who are going to be impacted disproportionately are going to be black brown and low-income folks so trying to prepare us in a quick manner is something i think is a huge priority right now um and it's, it's a little frightening when I think about it, I'm getting a little nervous even talking about it because there's so much work to be done to prepare our folks and to be resilient and make sure that even some of the successes that this generation has had in this movement, that um, it doesn't become a like something we have to, to continue to take the burden on all of it um, and to act quickly um, because sometimes people are left out when we start rushing things. Um, Anyways, I think that's the critical juncture. Seems urgent. I agree with you all. This is Candace again. Um, I think I share that level of climate anxiety in a lot of ways because it's just really personal. You know, we look at our futures and um, how the the scientists are coming out and giving us all these all this data that's just really hard to digest at times but we know on a just deep like guttural level that this is like a future that has a lot of uncertainty and um when we're already so destabilized economically um adding this extra layer just uh it, it is stressful um and I, I agree that you know you have to find balance um to obviously feel passionate about it while not letting it consume you so much that you don't want to take action and you know i think anna said it earlier that everybody listening right now everybody has a role to play and there's so many different roles small to large that we can all participate in and you know i think that's part of what this movement is also trying to do is just help bring people into it and understand how they can do that and how um how important it is to just be engaged because we just can't afford to be apathetic. We can't afford to um, not, you know, at least attempt to learn about how we can be involved. But with all of that being said, I, I do find so much hope in not only the stories that I heard from you all today, um, hearing the stories coming out of these communities and the ways that they have pushed back, the wins that they have had, um, the ways that people continue to hold on to that hope because uh, 
that's kind of what powers us in a lot of ways. Uh, at least it does for me. I really, uh, it's so fundamental to this work for me because if I don't have hope, then I have nothing to fight for. Um, so I'd love to, you know, end this conversation talking a little bit about what is giving you hope right now for the movement going forward? What are you seeing in the coming years and what's inspiring you uh, as a leader to keep going? Dreisha, kick us off. Great transition from my <laughs> last statements about some of the, the climate anxiety. Um, but there's a lot of hope. Um, a lot of that, I think, actually has to do with the policy. Um, even the short legislative session, we had so many wins. Um, there was a lot. And in the session before that, healthy homes. And this one that I'm most excited about was the critical energy infrastructure bill that passed um, for, for Oregon. And so those type of things are what give me hope that we're seeing our policymakers starting to prioritize this. And a lot of that has to do with some of the new folks we're getting in those roles. Um, we have some amazing representatives and senators who are doing um, their part and really prioritizing climate justice work and not shying away from the triggering words like climate that some of um, uh, some parties are uncomfortable with that used to kind of block bills like that from passing. So I'm hopeful now because we had so many wins in this last session um, and seeing so many new leaders that look like black and brown folks, I look like myself and black and Filipina folks that um, are representing our movement. So it's not, we're no longer having white men at the, the forefront of, of leadership and policy. So that's giving me a lot of hope. Awesome, thank you. Um, yeah, I kind of going back to our last question, I, I really do feel a lot of hope about the next generation. Um, so like I said, I work with Sunrise Movement PDX. Um, we're a youth climate justice organization, and I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of incredible young people, many of them high schoolers, many of them who got into organizing um, when they were 13, 14 years old. And I think they really get it. Like they get it in a way that I definitely didn't get it 10 years ago when I was in high school. Um, and I think a lot of this is because they're starting to see the climate crisis at their doorsteps, um, which really, you know, breaks my heart, but they're seeing it at their doorsteps. Interest in Sunrise PDX was never higher um, before the uh, Labor Day fires that happened in 2020. We got a huge influx of folks being interested because they were seeing the impacts of the climate crisis, right? You know, literally looking outside. Um, Many folks are seeing their families across the country and yeah, even overseas deal with increased climate disasters, hurricanes, you know, wildfires. Um, and it is definitely impacting black and brown and low income families even more heavily than it ever has. Um, but this next generation, um, I think they're built different. They're ready to fight not only the climate crisis, but the patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism. And somehow they're also incredibly stylish in a way that I was not when I was 15. Um, and, and like I said, while I really think we can't be relying on, on young people to be quote unquote saving the day because that is not realistic and there's too much pressure, um, they give me a lot of hope and I think they can be a model for all of us to be, um, you know, just being really real about where we're at and what we need to do. And um, yeah. And on top of that, um, being in a city, you know, where I get to work with other incredible folks like you, like Dracia and Vivian and Candace, I'm just, first of all, incredibly honored to be on this panel today to hear all that you all said and um, know that you all are leading a lot of this work gives me a lot of hope. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for that, Anna. Uh, definitely echo your last point. Um, it's such an honor to start off uh, my, my day actually in this engaged conversation 
um, with Candace, Jerisha, and Anna, um, really bringing in your experiences, the spaces that you're in, and be able to continue to do this work um, alongside you. You know, I think hope and love have to be sort of the motivating factors to stay engaged in advocacy, to stay engaged in activism, um, and to not become disillusioned because there's always going to be challenges and there's always going to be, uh, dominant culture is always going to block the sort of movement and progressivism that we are challenging and uh, striving for um, and, and shaping that, that desired future state. Um, of the world that we deserve to live in, of that just transition um, that we know we need to make today, immediately um, to, you know, steer our, you know, in a different direction. Um, and so it, the, the, the motivating factor has to be love for community, love for humanity and our peoples, um, a love for that seventh generation yet to come as our, uh, you know, as our indigenous um, friends and family tell us about. Um, and, and having hope uh, for that, that has to be the candle that stays lit for us. I wanna echo, you know, Jerisha, you brought in, you know, the sort of political power and the policy changes that have made. And yes, let's celebrate that. I think celebration is so important um, and you celebrate in order to continue to ignite your hope <laughs> that like that next win is coming. So um, heck yes, you know, the tenants right to cooling that, that they was so honored to be able to help steward, um, you know, working at that intersection of, the impacts of current climate change in the Pacific Northwest here in Oregon at home and what that's going to have uh, with folks who are, uh, you know, who don't have as much control over their living situation as tenants who don't, uh, you know, and what that right to cooling has um, for them. Humongous win. Um, the sort of political power that's being built into having the current generation, the current crop of elected officials who are working within the existing systems to agitate and to ensure that they can create these linkages to what's traditionally known as the outside um, to enact that sort of longstanding policy change. I also think about all the mutual aid efforts that we've really seen and a lot of us have participated in proactively in the last few years to be responsive to the intersectional crises of um, economic impacts of a global pandemic, um, the crumbling of our traditional institutional systems to be able to be responsive at a time of need and how the mutual aid networks really just came in right away to say, hey, uh, we take care of us, right? Communities can support communities and we know how to create those linkages. We know what our folks need. Um, and so we can be responsive to that. I'm continually in, you know, inspired by work I'm not involved in. Uh, you know, uh, the hope that that folks who are at the front lines of pipeline fights uh, give me. Shout out to organizers in Southern Oregon who finally successfully, um, you know, have have made progress on, on Jordan Cove, and that project is not going to impact them. Uh, and I think about dam fights and dam removal fights that tribal people um, are leading on uh, in order to 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 talk about the way that our waters flowed and the way that our environment was um, before these destructive, uh, th these destructive economically driven uh, projects were put into place and sort of the reimagination that we can have around how we generate energy and power for our communities while, while understanding and respecting um, first foods, respecting the, the natural flow of the world. What gives me hope uh, is continue, you know, how, Information is more accessible now than it ever has before, you know, um, and 
as annoying as social media can be and how as unuseful and toxic as those platforms can be as well, um, information is at our fingertips and we can really do some more research to say, hey, who, who, is, who are the women frontline leaders of the environmental justice movement? Who are the leaders in my community who are doing radical work um, and, and leading on this? Um, and so I, I see how a lot of times young folks are schooling me on what they've been learning and they're like, yeah, I learned about it on social media. Um, I think about, you know, older folks who, who are saying, you know, that this is making me more connected to my communities in a way that I never have before. Um, and these tools are helping to facilitate that. So I definitely think there's an intersection as well with technology um, for us and for us to also shape what that technology looks like uh, in order to continue to strive for um, you know, ownership of data, um, you know, better access to that as well. I know there's groups who are leading on that here in Portland and, and nationally as well. So all of that gives me uh, a deeper well of hope that I would have otherwise. Well, uh, you all just filled up my hope cup. Let me just say that. Uh, I think hearing the ways that you all are inspired, uh, definitely I concur. I agree. Those are the things that inspire me. And uh, I feel so empowered to be amongst not only this amazing group of panelists. Thank you so much, Vivian Satterfield, Anna Kemper, and Dreisha Brannon for joining me for this conversation. If you're just tuning in, we have an environmental justice women's roundtable going on right now. Definitely hit us up on the replay on X-Ray FM. Uh, and we have just spent the last hour talking about the ways that women have shown up in this movement, how they've shaped it, and how they continue to generate hope for the future of environmental justice. Thank you so much to the three of you for joining. Thanks to all who are listening. Um, there are ways to get involved. Uh, definitely, obviously, I'm going to plug Verde um, because we are, we're doing some of that frontline work. Um, you've heard from organizations like Sunrise PDX, uh, the NAACP. There are so many groups in Portland and in Oregon who are committed to this work and are always available and looking for help. So make sure to check out those websites, join the movement. This is uh, all of our future and we all need to fight for it. Thank you so much. Have an amazing International Women's Day. Signing off, Candace Avalos.